of you that when the role is called, uh, you will be there with the saints on that great resurrection morning. We're turning in the Bible to Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 20, that portion I read from a little moment ago. Now tonight we're going to deal with the first part of Revelation 20, a very hotly debated and controversial section of God's Word. And now, hopefully coming in tonight, you'd have received a little diagram. Um, it's not that I had too much time on my hands this week. I really, I have a, my mind works in pictures. It really does. If you come to my study, there's pieces of paper, hundreds of them, little diagrams and arrows and all kinds of things. And this is the product of my mind. So it's not downloaded, it's not pulled off. There, there may be similar things there, but what you see here is how I've worked it out in my own head from the Word of God. Uh, so I thought I would leave it with you. You can take that home, you can look at it, or you can do what you want with it. But please do consider what we'll be looking at this evening. So you can set that to the side uh, for later on. If you haven't got one of those, please see one of the deacons on the door tonight, and they will furnish you one with one of those. Can I just say this before we come to the word tonight that I really have no interest, none whatsoever, in speaking on things that are, and I use the word eschatological, it's the study of end times, eschatology, I have no interest in looking at these things from the point of point scoring over my brethren. There are many who vary in their views on these things, particularly on the millennium, the thousand-year reign. I love them in the Lord. And while I may not share their views, I do not put these things out tonight. You do not receive that chart to go home and beat your premillennial or your postmillennial friends over the head. Uh, but I would say to you, for the reasons I will outline tonight, I strongly hold to what is before you because what I believe the Scriptures teach is not eschatology, end times, for the sake of end times. But Christ gave us these things to fuel the church to dynamic evangelism. And I believe that the church is suffering tonight because of its eschatology. It's suffering from many things. I believe that we get the hold of this, our prayer life, the prayer of the church, the evangelism of the church, your home life, your outlook on the problems of what's going on in our world will be greatly helped. I believe that. And that is why I'm dealing with this. I am not here to, oh, Reverend Thompson's going to deal with the millennium and he's going to sort everybody out. That's not the case. I'm doing it with a heart for the gospel and I trust that will become apparent this evening. Let us pray again. Father, we come to thee. Thank thee, these are thy words, which thou dost want your church to know. And we thank thee, God, that these words are written for our learning. And you've said in the word, chapter 1 of Revelation, Blessed is he that readeth, and doeth, and heedeth the things that are written within this prophecy. May we see Christ tonight. Bless us, comfort us through the challenge of this chapter. 
For these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin with a real life illustration that happened my wife, my family, a few months ago. We were invited by a friend to go and visit a privately owned zoo where there were two giant Bengal tigers in a man's garden. Now I am thankful there was a steel 25 foot cage around those two animals. If that cage, you may want to go, and there's two young boys running around in the foyer there. If that cage was not present, it would have meant for me instant death and my wife and my family. And I am absolutely glad that I was not in the menu that afternoon. Thanks to the cage, because the cage took care of those two Bengal tigers. Now, you may have found the same whenever you go to visit a zoo. I know for my children, when they were young, they may not remember it. But certainly when you go with children, any child to a zoo, they want to go to the lions or they they want to go to the reptile house. And there, between two inches of thick glass, they will stare a python or a mamba or a cobra in the eyes. And that cobra will rise before you and it will look you in the eyes. And yet, you're only inches from death, but you know you... The two-inch thick glass really takes care of the danger that that python or that uh, cobra really poses to you. Now, why do I mention those as illustrations? Because really that is the same thing that John is seeing here in Revelation chapter 20. We have looked at Revelation 19 recently and 18, and we have seen there how that the... The world is completely taken, it would seem, by wickedness. Evil abounds in every hand and it seems to be that there's no stopping the the wickedness that man can bring to the world. It never seems to end. And yet John here in chapter 20, and I'm not suggesting that these are chronological chapters because I don't believe they are. I believe we are shown many different things here, not necessarily on his. Historical order, I believe John saw them in order. He saw these vision after vision after vision. But that doesn't mean they happen in order. We can take the time some other day to look at that. But what John sees here, and is often lost by those who preach the gospel, is the glorious victory of Christ that Christ has wrought and he continues to work over the powers of darkness. Now, when you keep that in mind, because this chapter is by far one of the most controversial. People argue from day to night for hundreds of years about the millennium and what's this and what does this mean? Or will there be a literal thousand years of peace on the earth when Satan is, is bound and sealed up and he has no influence over the nations, no influence on the world? That means they're looking for, and that's where I part company, they're looking for an absolute cessation of wickedness on the earth for a thousand years it's the millennium it's the golden age where there's no sin there's no temptation there's no nothing except for a little while when christ is loosed and the church is taken or sorry satan is loosed and the church is taken off the earth now we could look at all those different views of what people think of this chapter will there be a thousand year reign will there when will it take place but i don't believe we would profit from that tonight because as i said Earlier there that Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he that readeth and he 
that hears the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written therein, there's a great blessing for you and me to actually look at this. Now, please don't go away tonight and do not stop now and say, listen, I don't understand these end time things. I just believe Christ is coming. My friends, I'm saying to you, that is the problem with the church of Christ tonight. We don't give any of these things thought. I'm not been hard on you when I know these things are not easy to understand. It's taken me years and sometimes I wonder, do I still really understand everything? And what I will say tonight, there are many, many things that are still mysterious. But I, we cannot just say, I believe Christ is coming and he will come at some point and I don't really worry too much about how he gets there. And people joke, and it's an awful thing when they joke about this. And they say, oh, I'm a pan-millennialist and it'll all pan out in the end. And they let a kind of smug laugh out of them. And I know that's okay, maybe in a place jokingly. But really, when it comes to the church, Church of Christ, my friends, we should be serious about these things because Christ wanted his precious blood-bought church to know what was meant, why Satan would be bound, as mentioned in chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. We need to look at this. I have no interest in a hobby horse. I have no interest in dealing with the millennial views tonight. But what I do, as I look at the church of Jesus Christ, I see a church swamped with pessimism. I see a church defeated. I see a church hopeless. Oh, you see, things are coming to a head. Christ is coming soon and we just got to hope for the best. And we've just got to make our way to the end. And you have heard that. Maybe you're thinking like that tonight. It's all around us. The pessimism of the church. And you know, well, it's going to come to an end soon. Christ's coming. Look at the things that are happening. Look at what's going on in the educational sphere. My friends, that is true. I do not deny that for one moment. But alongside that, we must see, as John saw, he was a man of 90 years of age, slogging out for 12, 15, 20 hours, maybe we do not know, in an iron mine on the island of uh, of Pathmos in the Aegean Sea. What would this vision have brought to John? As he sees things being hopeless and defeated and the church that would seem as if it's gone and its witness is finished on the earth. And the Lord comes and says, John, I want you to see something. And John, he sees an angel coming down from heaven with a key in one hand and a great chain in the other. And this angel lays hold on the dragon, Satan, and he binds him with his chain. He puts him in the bottomless pit and he seals him. It's as simple as that. Well, it's not as simple as that. But that's what the Bible says. And there's a very simple meaning to it. I intend to keep it very, very simple tonight. The binding of Satan. So we're going to look at tonight, folks. And I pray this will work its way into your soul tonight. As I believe it has into mine. I've come to love this and rejoice in this. But the binding of Satan. What does it mean? People say, oh, Satan's bound. Now, we are not looking at Satan being bound up and unable to... Create havoc on the earth, as the premillennials will teach. There will come a thousand years of great peace. And I'm saying these things in love to any premillennials who will listen to this message or who will come and challenge us. That's fine. I, I'm not about to argue. I'm not interested in debating. Well, I'll debate with you, but I'm not really interested in spilling blood over these things because the gospel is at stake here and I believe with my heart that what I'm saying to you is going to fuel the church and does fuel the church and that's what took the church on beyond John's day and age but instead of this hopeless pessimism that you know all's 
dark and gloomy and is finished and Christ comes and he shows John another way. And I framed it this way. He shows John another way of looking at the victory of the cross. Another way at the victory of the cross that is played out during, quote, the Lord's messianic mission. When Jesus came, he came to preach the gospel. And he did preach the gospel. He's given that to the church now. And he said, go into the world, make disciples of every nation, preach the gospel. I will be with you to the end of the age. He sends you and I out into the world tonight. We're going into a snake-infested world. And we see what Satan's doing. He's destroying families, taking lives, destroying marriages. He's doing this. He's creating havoc. It was saying, surely Satan's not bound. Preacher, have you never read First Peter 5, 8? Satan's rowing about like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. I know those verses. John knew those verses. What John is saying here, the binding of a Satan is God and Christ showing John, John, listen, things are bad. Things might look hopeless, but understand, my dear child, the gospel at the cross is going to triumph over Rome and triumph into the nations and into the world. It's unstoppable, John. Satan is bound. He cannot do these things. He cannot deceive the nations the way he once did. And I'll come to that in a moment or two. But let's move through this very quickly, because I want to get a lot said here tonight. I want us to look at, first of all, the one who binds Satan, and then the timing of his binding. Now, these are two very brief points, because I feel the third point is the most important. But I think it's necessary we look at the binding of Satan. First of all, who is the one who binds Satan? It's an angel, in verse 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven. Now, I know people are debating, is this an is this Michael referring to Revelation 12? Do you know what it speaks about? I saw a war in heaven, Michael and his angels, Satan and his angels, and the mighty angel cast out Satan from heaven. I, we know those verses, but personally speaking, I think the better interpretation of that is Christ. It may be an angel, it may be Michael, but I think what we are seeing here is Whatever it is, angel, or whether it's Christ himself, it is symbolic. This is all symbolism. And it's showing here an angel coming down from heaven, hurling the dragon into this abyss, shutting him up, putting a seal upon him where he remains. We're told, look at it, that old serpent, which means the old ancient serpent. There are four titles used of Satan there. Do you see them, young people? Look at it. Do you see the four titles? It says dragon. The old serpent, the devil, Satan. I believe that what we're seeing here is, and I know others of different views, premillennials particularly, who look at this and say, well, there's something wrong here because the prophet, he's already here. They look at that verse that's mentioned in verse 10, the beast and the false prophet are already there. We can deal with that another time. But we've been showing here that the great arch deceiver, Satan, who's destroying the world and tries to deceive the nations, cannot do what he wants to do because of the cross. He would love to tonight in 2023 bring about a worldwide instigation against Christ and his church, but he cannot do it. 
You know why? Because the gospel is still going out to the nations. And Christ says, I'm putting my foot on him. I'm binding him. I'm restricting him like a dog on the chain, which still remains very dangerous, by the way. You will get mauled if you go into the territory of a giant dog on a chain. But yet, it's, it's, as J.C. Ryle, the old bishop of Liverpool, once said, Satan works in chains. Oh, he's still active. He's still moving in that sense. He goes around, but he's bound. By Christ, who is the one who binds him? The old dragon, serpent, devil, Satan. He is the one who has been tormenting the world. But here, we see one stronger than him, taking him, binding him. He cannot resist it. Matthew Henry has a wonderful thought in this. Quote, he is one. This is on who is the one who takes Satan, binds him. And I often think, you know, you remember it was Michael the Archangel said, no, don't bring a railing accusation against Satan. Even the angels stand back and they are careful how they deal with this arch ancient serpent. They are. But, Matthew Henry He is one who has power to bind the strong man armed. Satan comes as a strong man armed. But here is one who comes to cast them out, to spoil his goods. And therefore must be stronger than he. Satan has neither the power nor the subtlety, the craftiness to escape out of Christ's hands. Can't do it. I believe this is Christ. Laying hold of Satan, a sign of his mighty power. Point two, the timing of his binding. It is Christ who binds him. When did it happen? Verse 2, it says there, the caging of the dragon. He laid hold on the dragon and he caged the old ancient serpent. Put him in this place. I believe the Bible is clear when this happens. Turn with me to Matthew 12 and the verse 29. Matthew 12, verse 29, please. Matthew 12, verse 29. Please do remember tonight, my objective is not to disprove another theory or view of the millennium. My view is gospel focused. Matthew 12, verse 29. The same word is used here, bind. Exactly the same word. How else can one enter? Matthew 12, verse 29. How else can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. Now we know that's a gospel passage. It's referring to Christ coming in and taking people out of the house of Satan and making him his own. Christ did that with you. It's to do with the gospel, saving souls. There's a mum here tonight, a father here tonight. This is a tremendous passage for you. You have a son not saved, a child not walking with the Lord, or a husband, a wife, a father, mother, whatever it might be. What's going on here? You're seeing here one who is mightier than Satan, who's able to go in, bind Satan, and remove that individual from the house of the strong man. That's a gospel issue. Turn over to Luke 10. And the verse 17. Luke 10, verse 17. And the seventy returned with joy, saying, Even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not, 
that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That Jesus was not at the cross. He had not died. And he sends these 70 disciples out and they come back rejoicing at the power to cast out demons and saying, the devil is under our feet. The devil is bound. And Christ immediately says, rejoice not in this, but rejoice your names in heaven. It's all gospel related. It all comes back to me. Now Jesus says, I beheld Satan fall as lightning. This language is symbolic of what would happen at the cross. Yes, there was a time when Satan was cast out of heaven. A war in heaven and Satan was cast out. Before that, in the Old Testament, he went before the throne of God every day accusing the saints of God. He had that privilege. But tonight, the old accuser has been cast down. The old accuser is in a different dispensation. (laughs) He's in the gospel age. He's in the age of the church. And the church of Jesus Christ, of which you are by grace made a part of, you have the power to go out and conquer him. Now, I'm not saying to you, you go out and you threaten Satan of all kinds of things and you go out. It's the gospel we're looking at here. There are fools across this world tonight and they believe they can take up serpents and hold them. Some of them have died. And they misconstrue these words that we go out and we can take up scorpions and we can take up serpents and, and they can be bitten and they will never die from these things. That's not what the text is talking about. It's talking about the great triumph of the cross. Brothers and sisters, I know these things may be very hard at times to get a hold of. But when Jesus sent out those 70 men, he was saying to them, you see, when I die and then the New Testament begins, you are going to see power on a scale. You will do greater things than these. You will see things happen. You will see the gospel conquer nations. Rome will fall. The world will fall before the gospel. And brothers and sisters, it may not look like that tonight, but let's get to the word. It's going to happen because the timing of the binding of Satan was at the cross. That the Old Testament prophesied this. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. When faced by the power of Christ, Satan must flee. I could say too much in this. But I will close this by saying this. At the cross, my friends. and That's why your view of end times. I'm not interested. I keep saying it. I'm not interested. And you coming to talk eschatology with me. Just for me to hear what you have to say. We're dealing with the souls of men here. We're dealing with the gospel issue. And Jesus says at the cross, I disarmed him who had the power over the nations and over darkness. I made an open display of him that through my death I might destroy him that had power of the death that is the devil. 1 John 3 verse 8, for this purpose was the Son of God manifested, that he might destroy the work of the devil. Colossians 2, 13, 15, he has disarmed the rulers. He has triumphed over them. It's like a great victory march that continues to this day. That's what Calvary was. My friends, the cross, the power of the cross, as we were singing tonight, it continues to this day. That's what the cross is. It was the beginning of the victory march 
Not just in Europe, VE Day, but in the world. Now that brings me to my third point, which is, I believe, the most important. The reason for his binding. Let's go back to the Re- Revelation, two, or Revelation 20 and the verse number. Three, and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. The bottomless pit is not the lake of fire. People say, oh, the end of the millennium. And this is where I think you need to look at your little chart when you go home and ping this together. People say, oh, there's going to be this millennium. Peace for a thousand years. No sin on the earth. Complete binding of Satan. And then at the end of that, Satan is loosed and he's cast into the lake of fire. My Bible tells me he's bound now. Which means he is bound tonight. And has been since the cross. And will be bound Till the day Christ returns. It's a very simple mindset. Dear pastor friend of mine. Said to me the other day. As I emailed that chart to him across the world. I said to him. Have a look. Check that out. Make sure it's okay. And and he came back to me. He says Paul isn't it amazing. That the more you focus on Christ. The simpler the whole thing becomes. Jesus Christ came once. He has bound Satan for the duration of the gospel age till gospel preaching ages run no more. He breaks through the sky. He judges the wicked. He takes his church home. He casts the the devil and the false prophet and he destroys everything all in the one thing. It all happens in succession. We're not waiting for this period of time and that period of time. And all these things all have to come in. You don't need charts written for that. You just like to look at the book. And what do we read here? We read here that this bottomless pit, it is not the lake of fire. That comes later on in verse number 10 when the devil is deceived, which was that deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. That's the end. So here it is, you tonight, we're all living right now in the middle, or I don't know what part, remove that word. We're living during the millennium. We're living during the thousand years. It began back then. It's continuing to run, and it's a symbolic term for the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. You might say, Pastor, there's two or three thousand years have gone since Christ. Can you not do your mass? You need to go back to mass class. I know that. Does not Peter tell you that one day is as a thousand years? And a thousand years is one day with the Lord. John is not told that Satan would have power to concoct schemes. He was not told he will not have power to disrupt the church. He will not have power to rage and foam against believers and put them in prison and, and tempt them. He's not told that. He's simply told one thing. The reason for his binding, he should not deceive the nations anymore. So we need to look at that. Now this is not an easy thing to look at, but if you look at the work of Satan prior to the cross, and all you have to do is look at ancient Israel, look at the people of God. Whenever they did not walk with the Lord... Satan was able to run a muck through the nations. He was able to rise, raise up Assyria, unite them with Egypt, and 
Babylon and these nations. He seemed to have this power to unite the nation. That's his one goal. Do you know that Christ, Satan's one goal from the very beginning was to unite the world against Christ? And he made many attempts. Genesis 11. Tower of Babel. What was, it? what was it all about? Bringing the nations together. What happened? God came down to see this puny effort. Scattered them. He almost succeeded. And he's been doing that all through the ages. He had power. Now I do not know. I'm not going to stand here and say. Well I can categorically say. This is the power that Satan has. And what he didn't have. And what he does now. In the Old Testament he worked under the sovereignty of God. He was always been in chains. He was not allowed to do this or do that. Satan has always been under the control of God. But for the glory of God my friends. We are living tonight. In a day whenever the gospel can go forth in a time with confidence preached by the church. Turn to Acts 26, please. There's one instance here where it's referred to uh, the power of Satan in the Old Testament, the power of Satan in the New Testament. There absolutely has been a change. Acts 26, verse 16, where Paul speaking there. Of his calling as an apostle. You remember the Lord appeared in the road to Damascus and said, Paul, you're going to be the man to take the gospel to the nations. And he, he's recounting this before King Agrippa. And he says to him, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee. Notice this, for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Now note verse 18. To open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Can I just bring this back to earth for you? I don't want to lose you. I really don't. Here's a preacher sent by God. And Jesus tells him, you're going forth on a mission to deliver people from the power of Satan. Paul, it's only possible because of me. It's only possible because of the cross. And he's pointing them back, pointing them back to the cross. Look at it. He's, there's the cross right in the middle of it. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. Where is forgiveness of sins found? At the cross. At the cross, brother and sister. Paul gets up and he goes into the world. Perilous times will come, 2 Timothy 3. Revelation 7, verse 9. John looks at the throne and what does he see? I see a multitude of people whom no man can number. Where are they from? Who are they, he says? They're from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Where's John at in this chapter he's in an iron ore mine watching the beast of Rome flex his mighty power over Europe and Africa and the world and saying there is no king but Caesar enter the gospel you go to Italy today you walk through the ruins of Rome 
There's no king but Christ. No king but Christ. And Christ is standing tonight and he comes to his little church in the middle of a world. We are living not in as bad a times as John left. It was a totalitarian government. There was no freedom. There was nothing. You preach the gospel, you lose your head. You go to work in the iron mines. That's where you go. But what do we find? One verse I want you to turn to or listen to it. Matthew 24, 14. And these are the words of Christ. And he says this. And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Do you see what Christ is saying? He's saying that my gospel will go into every nation of this world. You look at the boasts of the North Korean leader tonight. Look at the boasts of the Communist Party in China. Look at the locusts going on in Iran tonight. You listen to your brother Puyan recently. There are more people turning to Christ in Tehran tonight and across the, that vast nation of Iran than to Islam. Why? Because Satan is bound. Oh, he's still capable of snaring souls and destroying homes, but he can't stop the gospel. I was reading just the other day that I'm not just sure of the exact time, but you know, hundreds, well, not hundreds of years, but maybe probably the turn of the century, there were only something like one million Christians in China. Do you know how many Christians there are in China tonight? 100 to 120 million Ch- Chinese Christians. Now, I know those give or take a few million there, you know. Um, but I remember Dr. Alan Kearns saying this in a Bible conference a number of years ago. And he made reference to the work of the gospel in China. And he quoted something like that, like 80 or 90 million believers worshipping Christ. And these countries at once were closed to the country. You know, I was thinking about the war, World War II. And I thought, you know, about an illustration. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19, 20, Go you therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and I will be with you always the end of the age. My power is with you. Christ was saying to you, there's not a bridgehead that has been made into every country in the world. You know, you take a, an illustration from World War II. And you imagine there's an attempt being made by the liberating army to enter a country whose borders are completely locked. Can't get in. Its defences are solid. But there's a way that's found in. On the armies of the liberation forces, they begin to pour through that chink in the enemy's defences. And those oppressors who have defended their country have now no way of stopping the troops putting their boots on the ground. My friends, that's what the gospel is doing tonight. Whether it be Rath and Raw, whether it be Park Hall, whether it be Styles, whether it be Rathcool, or whether it be Ardoyne or Pole Glass, or my friends, the gospel is, has, has made a bridgehead for the church of Jesus Christ and the every nation. And that's what John is seeing here. John was not seeing it as he was lying on the Lord's day in that little 
Kiev or wherever he was, he was just seeing desperation and despair. But he gets his eyes on Christ and his eyes on the gospel. And he's shown, John, look, get your eyes off the world and off these things and get your eyes on me. People are heard saying all the time, oh, we're seeing the uniting of the nations. We're seeing a one world government coming, one currency, one people, one banking system, one everything, one this, one that. For years, people have looked at the EU. The EU is crumbling. I'm not prophesying concerning that. The EU may become stronger. There may become attempts to prevent the gospel. But remember this. There always have been. There always will be attempts at one world government. Because that's what this man wants. The beast. The serpent. He wants this. He wants the world uniting against Christ. But he can't do it. And he will never do it. There will never be a one world government. You might say it's a big statement. Well, I'm telling you, we're all the nations of this world. Because Christ says he has no power to deceive the nations no more. There will be attempts. There will be resemblances to it. Many nations may come together. But my friends, even if they do, the gospel will still triumph. And that's what we need to think about. That's what we need to go. Now, can I say this in closing? I said there a moment or two that there will never be a, world war go- a one world government. During this reign of the gospel, there cannot be. Jesus said every nation must be open to the gospel. There will be believers. And I'm not saying it will be easy for believers in those nations. It will not be easy. There will be martyrdoms. There will be beheadings. There will be all kinds of persecution. Breaking out in the church. But the gospel is going forth. And that's the reason for the binding of Satan. Child of God. We are not so defeatist. That, oh we're hoping for a rapture. Or we're hoping for the Lord just to come tonight. And take us away. We are a church mighty with army. Banners flying to the breeze. Going out with the gospel to the children, to the world. This is positive, gospel-powered, gospel-fueled, end-times thinking that leaves us going home with a skip on our step. There is not a home where Christ cannot enter. Now let me bring this all to conclusion. Verse 2 says Satan was bound a thousand years. A thousand years. This period, he is not allowed to deceive the nations until that period of time is up. When at the end of that period, he is loose for a little season. We hear a lot of that, don't we? Bear with me for these next few moments. Because I believe this will really help you. This thousand years... It's symbolic. It's not a thousand years and then, boom, Satan's released. It's the gospel age. Christ's come. He bound them. Go preach the gospel, church. Get out there. Save souls. Bring in my people. I have an elect of every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we go with the gospel and God works. And that will continue right till the very last soul is brought in and Christ comes. But right at the end, just before We're told here that at the end of that gospel age, Satan is loosed for a little season. Look at verse 7. When a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. A little season. 
Oh, let me take you back into these chapters. Do you remember the great tribulation? Do you remember the appearing of the man of sin? Do you remember the great deception that is rampant? And we are seeing that tonight. The deception that's beginning. And the Bible never shies away from saying that just before Christ comes, there's going to be this unprecedented time of persecution where Satan is loosed. But it's during that little time where he's let out, not for, I don't believe, a literal period of seven years, but he's loosed for that time where he breaks out. And what's the first thing he does? The very first thing he does is the very thing that he has always wanted to do. Verse number eight. He goes out to deceive the nations. He doesn't go out to cause them to sin, because he's been doing that for thousands of years. He doesn't go out to tempt them. He's been doing that for thousands of years. He doesn't go out to do any of these things. He goes out to deceive the nations. He goes out to unite every nation against Christ. And he does that. At least he tries. And Jesus comes and destroys him. And takes his church from that scene I was just thinking in my study this week I don't know about you but I have a lovely wee dog at home <laughs> he hates his chain but some dogs should be on chains some should not be on chains but <laughs> sometimes we go out for the day on the chain and he sort of you know walks over but when you let him off that chain what's he like <laughs> he's away and I was thinking about Satan. When the thousand years were expired, he doesn't come out and stretch and says, when the thousand years are expired and Satan is loosed, he goes out immediately from his stinking putrid cell, his chain, and he goes out to deceive the nations in the four quarters of the earth. I tell you tonight, we are not seeing that tonight, really, yet. And in this short window, is in a time of unparalleled persecution. He rages, he deceives. But as soon as it seems the church is going to be destroyed, and Satan's ha <laughs> ha laughing at us about he put his foot on the church, what do you read? Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they compassed the camp of the saints. That's what's befalling the church. Here's Satan, he comes and they surround the church. I don't believe this is literal nations. It's just a, out, a wholesale persecution of the church. You're going to see your little church in Antrim forbid to open its doors. He compasses the camp, camp of the saints about and the beloved city. But as soon as he does that, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Christ bursts forth with countless angels and countless saints. And what happens? He takes Satan and this time it's not a, an abyss, a binding, but he casts him into the lake of fire and brimstone where he's tormented alive forever and ever and ever and ever. Can I close with two illustrations? What are the saints doing 
during that thousand year reign. Well, you know, they're, we're told they're sitting on thrones in verse number four. I know it's referring to the saints. There are many people. Do you know there's people who have died for their faith? Where are they tonight? They're reigning. They're reigning. Oh, but those people in North Korea have lost their heads, their lives for preaching Christ. Where are they? They're reigning. I believe it's a twofold thing here. There's certainly during the, the two during the thousand years, this this age which we are living in tonight, there is the reigning of the saints in heaven, and there's the reign of the church in earth. But can I tell you a story, a true story of Maybe you know the story of Lady, Gray, Lady Jane Grey. She was known as the nine-day queen. She was brought up in the court of Henry VIII. Her cousin was Bloody Mary. You children should get Dr. Joel Beagie's book on Lady Jane Grey. It's a beautiful book. Read it to your children. Really would tear your heartstrings. But she was only a little teenager. She came to the throne of England when she was 16, 17 years of age. She was put on the throne as a Protestant. The Roman Catholic Queen Mary did not want her there. I know there's a lot of other intricacies going around the Lady Jane Grey story, but Lady Jane Grey was taken and put in the Tower of London by her own cousin, Queen Mary. She was visited every day by priests and by ministers and told you need to recant and give up and just obey your cousin and you'll be fine. She was married at a very young age. She was married at 16, 17. But her husband and Lady Jane Grey were committed to death by beheading. They took her husband out first, put his head in the block, and he lost his life. They put his body on a, a carriage and they brought her, her husband's body round by the tower window so she could see the body of her husband lying on the back of that, car, or that, that car, cart. But recount she would not. Lady Jane Grey went out to the block and you read the story and that young teenager was blindfolded. In fact, the executioner knelt down beside her and says, Lady Jane, will you forgive me? And she said to him, I just pray that you swing decisively. The stories are told of Lady, people who watched Lady Jane Grey as she fumbled her way to the block. Nobody would come forward to put the blindfold on her. It was such a disgrace that a young 16-year-old girl would be on such a position. She put her own blindfold on and fumbled around looking for the block where she would rest her head. Till someone come forward, took her hand, weeping, led her to the block, put her down. And her last words were, Lord Jesus, into Thy hands, I command my, my, my spirit. With one swing of the axe, the sparkle was gone. What does the world say? What a waste of a life. But where's Lady Jane Grey tonight?
She's on a throne. She's reigning. The young mother who stays at home to raise her children. I'm not saying you should stay at home to raise your children, mum. You have to work, that's fine. You, you, but you understand the principle here. The young woman decides, I'm going to stay at home. I'm going to raise my children. She takes cancer. She dies in her 30s or 40s. And the feminist comes and says, what a waste. She gave her life raising her children, serving her husband. Where is that young mother tonight? She's on a throne. And the world comes and just calls you, you're a loser. It's going to be the biggest challenge you young people are going to find in this closing age of these worlds. You're just not a loser. You're not a loser. You're reigning with Christ. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, said Jim Elliot. Where is Jim Elliot tonight and those four young men who were killed in the mission field? They're on thrones, reigning with Christ. It's not a waste. It's not a waste of life. As I conclude, I say this to you. You need to get out. With this theology, this eschatology, this view of binding Satan, you need to get out and say, Lord, we're going to the nations and we are going with white hot evangelism because, you know, there's not a home, there's not a door that is closed to us. We go and we witness. The, the, the binding of the devil and the reigning of the saints, all mentioned here, and you appreciate I'm moving very quickly here, is not just to do with the intermediate state of the soul. People are in heaven reigning with Christ. If you have a loved one who's gone from the scene of time, they're with Christ. If they know the Lord Jesus. But right now, we are called to be children of the day. Because the night cometh when no man can work. I read those words this week. I'm not going to open them because I'll start preaching again. You look at them please. First Thessalonians, you look at it. Five, one to five. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord cometh as a thief in the night. But Jesus is coming. And we know that when the world will not expect it. But what is Paul going to say? Therefore, we must work. We must work, he says. Because we are children of the day. And we must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. For the night is coming when no man has worked. Children, you can go out into that gospel or that estate tonight with the gospel because we are still living in the light. We are not in the dark ages, even though in the dark ages the gospel still triumphed when Satan was, yes, he was working wickedly. But brothers and sisters, this is what moves you out of your chair onto the streets and saying, you know, I'm going to witness to that man at work tomorrow. Even though he chases me and says, get off my property or get away from me. I have this thing in my head. Satan's bound. The gospel is more powerful. I was telling one of the men the other day. My wife and I were watching this just the other night. Some of you may, some of you are old enough to remember that's life, Esther Ranson. Some of you are smiling, so you're as old as me. But way back in the 1980s, there was a man who was interviewed. He was, a, he was actually a, a British businessman. Entrepreneur. His name was Nicholas Winton. 
He was known as the British Schindler. Oscar Schindler, you will remember the story, how he saved many Jews from death. But Nicholas Winton was a man who went on a skiing trip, holiday to Switzerland. He went to that place and he was moved. He heard Hitler is going to close the borders of Germany in the next number of months. And he looked over the faces of little children who he knew were going to be put in the gas chamber. Their mothers and fathers, some of them had already been slain. And Nicholas Winton, a businessman, wealthy man, he began to bring back hundreds of children to Britain and put them into foster homes and care homes, get them into families, keep them. And he made these multiple trips back and forwards through Czechoslovakia, saving as many people he realised the window of opportunity was closing. And in 18 months before Hitler closed the door to Germany, 669 children were saved. That man was interviewed a few years ago, a number of years ago, on That's Life. And he told the story about it. Many of you have seen it. And they had people in the audience. They asked the question, is there anybody in this audience who has been, who's, who has been saved as a result of Mr. Winton's actions? And almost the whole audience stood up. And that old man in his 80s, late 80s, began to weep. He was asked later why he was weeping. And he said, the day Hitler closed the door in Germany, I had 250 little children standing on a platform, railway platform in Czechoslovakia with their suitcases ready to come to England. And tonight I don't know where they are. Most of them, I believe, are probably perished. There's a man, I thought, you know, what must it be? I don't know if this will happen in heaven, but could you imagine somebody, I don't know if the Lord will do it, and say, could people please stand up who was brought to faith in Christ, who is saved through this man's ministry, through that woman in the church? And could you imagine one person standing up, let alone dozens? Brothers and sisters, we have a little window here. Christ has graciously given you children, mums and dads, all together a window to work in. And we know it's closing. It's closing. And therefore, work. Bring them in. Work feverishly. Because soon the night will come when no man can work. But tonight is still day. I trust tonight, folks, I have not lost you here because you have seen, I trust, that this is not a sermon, a message about beating people over the head. I've got it right, you haven't. There may be many things I haven't got right. But I will say this. It's a good eschatology if it drives you to your knees in prayer, praying for the souls. Like Nicholas Winton, I'm going to do everything I can to bring souls to Christ. Will you do that? That's what's going to fill our prayer meetings. That's what's going to put boots in the street. The night's coming when no man can work.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the preciousness of Christ and all of this and the preciousness of the gospel. And we pray now, O God, that as we part from this gathering, that thou would bless us. We thank thee, O Lord, that Christ is reigning tonight and he will one day reign. Father, we pray that this little church here will know the power and the blessing of Christ upon his ministry. Remember thy church on earth tonight, especially in those places where there is great persecution. Even though he's chained, he's causing much damage. Lord, remind those churches that the victory has been won and will one day fully come. Part is with thy blessing, with thy favour. Now by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the eternal spirit be with you both now and forevermore. Amen.